Well, as our brother Ben said, uh, over the course of this Advent season, we're going to be uh, turning our attention to the songs of Christmas as recorded in Luke's, uh, Luke's gospel. And generally speaking, whenever you see a song or a poem plopped into the middle of a narrative in the scriptures, um, that's placed there for a reason. Uh, and usually that is to interpret the events that are surrounding it. So these four songs that we'll, that we'll uh, look at this Advent, they are the interpretive grid for the events of Christmas. Um, so the hope and the prayer is that over these, over these weeks, the Lord will, uh, through the reading and the preaching of his word, uh, fill us with a fresh wonder um, and a, a renewed joy uh, at the incarnation of our Lord Jesus, which we eagerly anticipate the feast for. Um, later next month. Today, we'll be looking at the Song of Mary, which the church has uh, come to call the Magnificat, which is taken from the, the first word in the Latin translation, my soul magnifies the Lord. Um, the Magnificat uh, is what erupted out of Mary's um, heart and mouth uh, when she was greeted by her cousin Elizabeth, and the angel had promised Mary, she said, how, how can this be? Because I'm a virgin. And he says, the Holy Spirit will cause this, this child to be conceived in you. And also, by the way, your cousin Elizabeth, who's barren, she is with child, and she's been pregnant for six months. So Mary goes, and she gets a double confirmation. One, she sees, indeed, the Lord has caused her cousin uh, to, to bear a child. And secondly, the way that Elizabeth greeted confirms to Mary that she is caught up in the Lord's plan and she is blown away. <coughs> now this happened a couple of millennia ago, roughly 4 BC, 5 BC, somewhere around there. And so I think it's helpful for us to set the stage because we don't naturally relate to Mary. We don't naturally relate to the hopes and the expectations that she had as a faithful Israelite girl um, at the end of the first century BC. So, at this time, Caesar Augustus rules over the Roman Empire. And for the last hundred and, uh, let's see, maybe for the last, the last several decades, uh, Israel has been completely under, under the subjugation of Rome. Prior to that, there was a little bit of a period where Israel had some sort of autonomy as they dwelt in the land surrounded by uh, the Greek and Roman empires, but that was short-lived. Before that, they were under the, the thumb of Persia, and before that, they were under the thumb of Babylon. So really, effectively, there hasn't been a king from the line of David sitting on the throne in Jerusalem for over 500 years. And at the time that Mary receives this word from the angel Gabriel, there hasn't been a prophet in Israel, a bona fide prophet, for over 400 years. A great time of silence, and yet... Faithful Israelites in households and in synagogues would gather weekly and daily to hear the words, the promises of God, and they clung to them. 
an oppressed people, an afflicted people, being taxed heavily. Mary was not from money. She was likely a teenager. But she hoped, she had hope in the promises of God. The promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, to their offspring, which was the nation of Israel. The promise that through Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. All nations of the world would be redeemed. That's the last thing that anybody at this moment in time would have thought. That through the nation of Israel, the whole world will be blessed. This is the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, the golden age. Israel was a nothing burger on the east side of the Mediterranean. Nobody cared about, nobody thought much of a humble and lowly nation as Mary was a humble and lowly peasant girl. So the Magnificat. Uh, this song has three sections. The first is uh, those first couple of verses. Uh, I guess it'd be the first, yeah, the first two verses, 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Mary's celebrating. That's the first section. The second section is about why she's celebrating. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servants. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. So this is the cause of her celebration. And then thirdly, she moves beyond what God is doing uh, for, for her sake, and she sees how it fits into what God is doing for the whole world and for Israel. He has shown his strength, the strength, uh, sorry, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their, the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. There it is again, the humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servants. There's that word again, but the servant in this case is Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, God remembers his covenant as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So three movements, celebration, the reason for the celebration, God's condescension to Mary, his, his giving her great honor and blessing, um, but then zooming out and how what God is doing in Mary's life is part of his fulfillment of his plan and his promises that he made to Abraham 2,000 years before. I think that this morning, we'll take a look at this in reverse order. So, by God's grace, we will have kindled in our hearts uh, the same exaltation um, that Mary had that, that day. So, God's promise to Abraham and his offspring. This is what nobody believed outside of a faithful few in Israel, like in Mary's house and in Joseph's house. That through the offspring of Abraham, all the families of the earth and all the nations that came from the families of the earth would be blessed. This was God's promise to deal with the problem of sin and all of its ramifications and all the corruption and distortion that it brought into creation. 
God is going to do something magnificent through the family of Abraham. But as any reader of the Old Testament knows, the family of Abraham failed on every account, time and time again, to the point that they were exiled in the 6th century B.C. And even after they came back from exile, they never had a king from David's line on the throne. So it certainly didn't look to anybody like God would be faithful to his promises. If, uh, if, if they had newspapers back then, then faithful Israelites claiming the promises of God and what he would do would be mocked and people would hold up the newspaper and say, look at the headlines. There's no way this is happening. Your God has failed or you misunderstood him. And revisionist interpretations would emerge. But God was on the move. As he had promised, so he was beginning to fulfill. He had preserved the line of David um, all the way to the house of Joseph. He was going to place a king on the throne, and he was going to do it through Mary, his humble servant. This is how, verse 54, again, we're moving in reverse order. Um, he has helped his servant Israel, and he has remembered his mercy. Uh, technical term, that, that mercy is his steadfast love. It's his covenant love. It's what he has promised because he has set his favor upon Israel. This is the way that God made promises to Israel. Not because of what you have done. Not because of what you have earned. But merely because I love you. And for the glory of my name, I will fulfill my promise to Abraham. I will make you a light to the nations. I will redeem you. I will bring you back as far as you wander. And through my people Israel, I will be known in all of the earth. What does this look like? Verse 51 to 53. He's the subject of every one of these actions. He has shown strength with his arm, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. Now, there are some over the last few decades who get really excited about this because they see in this verse, they see a moral and a political and a social revolution being called for. Scattering the proud, bringing down the mighty from their thrones, turning the rich away and filling the hungry with good things. But this isn't a call for revolution. This is what the Lord is doing, but it is the Lord who is doing it. And it's not because God is opposed to the rich and to the powerful. You will remember that Jesus incentivizes his disciples to faithful obedience with the promise that there are greater rewards in heaven for those who are faithful. He promises that in the kingdom, those who made themselves last here will be first, and those who are the least here will be greatest. He promises that those who are faithful stewards will be entrusted with more authority and power, and honor in his kingdom. 
And so it is not that God is opposed to the rich and to the powerful in principle. Rather, he is opposed to those who are proud in their wealth and their power. He is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He abases the proud. And the reason why he is opposed, and what a horrible thing to have the Almighty God in opposition to you, but the reason he opposes the proud, the reason he hates pride and sets himself against it, is because pride comes before our destruction. Pride is the original sin. Pride is what led Adam and Eve to grasp for the knowledge of good and evil rather than depending upon the wisdom that came from God's mouth as he walked with them in the garden. Pride comes before destruction, a haughty spirit before the fall. It was because of pride that humanity was cast into death. And therefore, in God's salvation, he begins by saving us from our pride. This is why he is opposed to the proud, why he brings them down, why he turns away the rich who are proud in their wealth and the powerful who are proud in their might and those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He brings them down so that he could bring them up. He humbles us in order to heal us. He humiliates us so that he can help us. I don't know why that I got the assignment to preach the sermon on humility, because really this is the song of the humble. Only a humble man or a humble woman can sing this song, to sing it from the heart. It's not possible for someone who is proud because it is set, set against them. Uh, and so with fear and trembling uh, and with great inadequacy, I bring this word to you this morning, which, which is a hard word because of our tendency, every one of us, toward pride. But it's also a comforting word because as Hosea says, he has struck us down and he will bind us up. He has torn us that he may heal us. This is the song of the humble because God's face is set toward them. He is not opposed to them. You will recall that Mary, when uh, she was approached by the angel Gabriel earlier in this chapter, he says, greetings, O favored one. And uh, she doesn't know what to make of it. She's troubled in her spirit. And you can imagine, what do you mean? Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with me. What could he want to do with a girl like me? She's confused. God doesn't deal with people like me. I'm a nobody. Just like Israel was a nobody in the ancient Near East. But God's attention is on those who are lowly and who do not esteem themselves highly. And the reason is, is because it is the lowly and the humble that are like him. 
God himself is a humble God. Sending his son to take the form of a servant, to lay down his life for those who are infinitely and eternally inferior to himself. He is the epitome of humility. And therefore, it is only those who are humble that can know him. And it is those that are humble in one way or another that can see him. And it is those that are humble who will experience the blessing that Mary received that day to be called up into God's plan for salvation for his people and for the ends of the earth. This is the glory that was filling Mary as she realized that she and her cousin Elizabeth, old and barren, and she, uh, young and betrothed but unmarried, neither of them from wealth, these women, one at the beginning of her life and the other near the end, called by God to bring the forerunner and the Messiah into the world. He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And so, she says, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Mary magnifies the Lord. She's doing it with her mouth. She's proclaiming his greatness. That's what it means to magnify the Lord. It's not making him bigger because he's small, but it's, it's, um, it's proclaiming his greatness. But she doesn't say that my mouth magnifies the Lord. She says my soul magnifies the Lord. Her inner being magnifies the Lord. And then, as is normal in Hebrew poetry, there's a parallel statement to help elaborate upon that truth or that reality. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So the way that Mary's soul magnifies the Lord is in her rejoicing in him. What good news, because God calls us to magnify him, to testify, to declare his greatness in the earth. And if you're anything like me, that's not always something that's easy to obey. From the soul, from the mouth, anybody can. Anybody can magnify him. But to make the soul rejoice in God is something that can't be manufactured. But it's not something that we create. Joy in the Lord is not something that we produce. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So Mary says that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. And in that... He is magnified in my soul. May it be so for us. As we anticipate Christmas, uh, we, we in this Advent season have an opportunity. There may be some in here who, this is your song. It resonates with you right now. You don't think highly of yourself. You're amazed at God's grace. You feel it. You feel the joy of the Lord. If that's you, then you are blessed this morning. You might not have power. You might not have great finances. 
You might not have esteem among others, but if you have the joy of the Lord, then you are most blessed in this room. I'm sure that there are others where this doesn't resonate, not in the soul, but you want that. You want to have the joy of the Lord, and you want him to be magnified. And if that's the case, then this Advent presents an opportunity for you. Because Advent is preparation for Christmas and for the feast of the incarnation, um, there's an opportunity in preparation for that feast to make it more potent. So we just got through Thanksgiving, and a a refrain that, that we hear every day in my home is, I'm hungry, what can I eat? And typically our response to that refrain is an apple or a carrot. Wait until dinner. But you can have an apple or a carrot. But it was different this Thanksgiving when we heard, I'm hungry, what can I eat? The answer was nothing. We're going to have a huge feast tonight, and we don't want to ruin your appetite. It's going to be better if you wait. So that's what we did, most of us. I may have had a donut. (laughs) Like I said, I'm not qualified. (laughs) But it wasn't Advent yet, okay? So, now that it's Advent, there is an opportunity, an invitation um, to prepare ourselves for this feast. To prepare ourselves to receive afresh the touch of God's grace. uh, The the taste of his goodness and his gifts. Uh, that surround the celebration of the gift that he gave us in Jesus Christ. And that is to fast. To fast before the feasts. Because we live amidst abundance, not only materially, but um, intellectually. There's so much that dulls our thoughts. There's so much that dulls our tastes. We're bombarded with it. And on top of that is the pressure that surrounds us because our culture celebrates Christmas since before Thanksgiving. But really, they're celebrating... I don't know what they're celebrating, but they're not celebrating Jesus, generally speaking. And it's easy to get caught up in that. But we are a peculiar people. We are holy, like the Lord is holy. That means that we're different. And what a time of year to be different, to be unlike the world, and to prepare ourselves for the real feast, which is to eat upon God's grace in Jesus Christ. Um, So the opportunity is not only to fast from certain foods and I would say certain activities that are doling the mind, saturating the heart with the equivalent of MSG through social media or through news or whatever it might be, to not only abstain from those things, but also to fill or replace those things with something better. It's amazing to me that Mary, though she may have been 15 years old, when God comes near to her. And she, filled with the Holy Spirit, nevertheless, he's using what was in her. 
to bring the song of praise out. Every single line of the psalm is an allusion to the Old Testament. From the song of Hannah to the Psalms to songs in Isaiah, she's praising the Lord with the language of Scripture because she was saturated in the Scriptures. She was able to, she was able to feel the magnitude of what God was doing in her life by inviting her to be his servant, to bring him, his son, into the world, to be the mother of God. She was able to feel the gravity of that because she was so well acquainted with God's very great and precious promises. That's why scripture comes out of her mouth. And I wonder how often we miss out on joy because we're not aware of what God is doing around us because we haven't laid hold of his precious and great promises. <clears throat> and so over the, next of the, uh, the, the course of this next month, if you want to be filled with good things, if you want to be filled with the best things, then I would exhort you to join me in a fast, to observe a fast in preparation for the feast, to ask the Lord to satisfy our hearts with himself. And the reality is, is that that is how he is glorified, and so he will do it. He doesn't hide from those that are seeking him. He gives good gifts to his children, the greatest gift being himself. So may Mary's song become our song this Christmas. May we magnify him. And if you feel, if you feel this morning already that joy, sing loudly over these next few weeks. Bolster the people of God. It blesses us. It blesses us when the voices of God's people fill the air. It helps to lift us up. It's one of the ways that we minister to one another, according to St. Paul, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's how we admonish one another. We're singing this truth. I believe it. And when I hear someone singing with conviction, and I know that they believe it, the Lord's Spirit is there. He uses that to drive those truths deeper into my hearts and into my bones. And if this morning the warning to the proud resonates with you and you feel that perhaps you need humbling, agree with the Lord. Ask Him for it. It hurts. I can certainly testify to that. It hurts. But he only hurts us in order to heal us. I don't know how, I don't, and I don't have the wisdom to say this, this, is how, this is how best that I should be humbled by the Lord. But he knows, and he will. You can't create those circumstances in your life. You don't want to. He's, he's fully capable. But what you can do is make yourself 
attuned or more attuned to what he's doing by laying hold of the scriptures and by fasting. So it's an invitation to joy. It's an invitation to be brought into what God is doing. And this truly can be every one of our songs. None of us is going to be called to become the mother of God. But when he looks upon you, his lowly servants, he intends to do great things for you, not only for your sake, but for the sake of his servant Israel, for the sake of the church and for the sake of our witness in the world. Every one of us, the lower the better, the least of us, the better, the more glory, the more God can work with you. So press into that this season. Once again, Hosea says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that we, he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. So let us know and let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn and he will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.